0: And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Kofi B Podcast. I'm your host with the most Kofi B, Kofi Boache. Be sure to add me on all social media platforms at Kofi B Music, uh, KofiBMusic.com. That's where you can get all the additional updates and information of everything that's going on on my end right now. And look, whether you're watching on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram right now, uh, look, I don't care. I'm just glad you're there. So thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, but this right. is not a, this is not about me, man. Look, this is not about me, man, because I'm excited, man. This is a a new episode, and I got one of my my industry uncles, man, joining me <laughs> on the on the podcast today, man. If you haven't heard of this guy or at least heard some of his work, you you think you haven't, but you know you probably have because he's, he's working with so many people man I got my guy Frank McComb on the podcast what's up brother how you doing what's up nephew how you doing man hey man I'm, I'm good man Th- thank you for taking the time man for for oh, being with, with me I know you got a busy schedule man now you all big time yeah. and everything man it's, so no, there's
1: always something to do when you're independent you'll see
0: <laughs> <laughs> you'll see look man I want to I want to really just get straight into it man because uh yeah. for, for me and, and looking at your story and, and kind of talking to you, the first time I met you uh, was last year. You came to one of my shows in With Akron. And shows, yeah. And, and, and um, you know, then I went to see one of yours. You had one in Cleveland, like, the next night <laughs> or something. so. yeah, I pulled up on um, first of all, you're, you're amazing at what you do. Well, likewise, bro. <laughs> you have been in, man. Yeah. Likewise. Like, you're a great but, keeper man, player, man. Yes, thank sir. You, man. Thank you. Oh, I yeah. mean, from, from just the outside perspective, looking in, knowing that you're from Ohio as well, man, I, I would just want to know man what was the journey for you kind of getting to this point because I'm looking at it I'm like man it's kind of it's kind of storybook for you to a certain extent for lack of better words like how things kind of flowed and, and got you yeah. to the point where you at talk to me about it
1: man um I wanted to get out <clears throat> I'm nothing against my hometown nothing against Cleveland Ohio at all I just knew that what I wanted to do for a living I couldn't do it there I had to get out you know and um I played in all the bars. I played in a bunch of the bars, you know, and I did sessions for a few different people there. I did um gigs for the Cleveland Teachers Union at Land Haven Country Club, you know, when I was younger, they would have all their conventions there and I would they would call me and ask me to play. Um but I knew from the time I was about three or four that I wanted to sing because I came from a family of singers. My mother, all of my aunts, my grandmother, they all sang, man. So I would watch them stand around the piano during Christmas and they would just sing old gospel hymns, you know, and then some blues tunes would get in there, you know, mm-hmm. and I thought it was so cool. So, <laughs> um, I knew I wanted to play drums. at eight I started playing drums cause I would watch my cousin Clarence in my family church, low beauty church, right there on Addison road. And, uh, I would watch him play drums. My aunt Evelina play piano and my aunt Liz would play organ and they would switch off sometimes. And I watched my aunt Evelina write a blues tune, after service, so I'm like, we're in church, and she's writing this blues tune. Mm. I saw that as musical freedom, so I was right. like, I want her to teach me that, you know. So that day, she gave me my first of three piano lessons. So she worked with me for one hour, uh, three Sundays in a row for one hour of Sunday So I had mm. three hours, literally three hours piano training. So I got all of my rearing in the streets. I started That's it? playing in the bars at, at 15. At 17, I had my first trio, and by the time uh, I hit 1920, I was in the band with the Rude Boys, Joe Little and all those mm, guys. Yeah. So I ended up being the musical director because the original musical director, uh, Cliff Colston, which we all need to be praying for because he's he's living in Houston and and I heard he's not doing so well. So mm, mm. Uh, Cliff, bass player, he, he was the original musical director, but he got called away to go play with the Pinots. So Marty Simps came in and they asked me to be the musical director then. So uh, we ended up going on the road in 91, and I met Jeff and a few other people. They all talked me into moving to Philly. So I moved to Philly in September of 91. And I did session work with Jeff and Will. And mm-hmm. I did uh, session work with Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff, Philadelphia International Studios. And uh, I stayed there till November 9th, 1992. So about a, a little over a year. And that's when a gentleman named Steve McKeever, uh, as they say, discovered me. <laughs> so, Got it, right, right. right. Um, Steve McKeever, people would know him as the gentleman who found Jill Scott and started okay. this. Yeah, but McKeever found me years before um, in Philly, at, at, at Philly International, at, at, the, at the record company, which is where their studio was as well. So he found me there. I sang one tune, and that got me my deal. It's a tune that I I had never released on like a, a a studio album, but I did it live on an on an, on an album live in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Song called "Time and Time Again" got me my deal with Motown, and uh, on November 9th, nineteen ninety two, I left. I visited L.A. and and never going back. So I've been out here ever since.
0: Wow. Yeah. yeah Wait. So I, you, we, I got to backtrack, man, because you you named a lot of names. I, I kind of want to know, like, how, how'd you, how'd you meet all these people? And what was that process like? Was it just like word of mouth? I mean, were you at the same place? What, what was going on, man?
1: A lot of it was word of mouth, you know, being on the scene. Um, and you know, even, even not the preach, but the word of God says that your talent, your, your gifts will make, room for,
0: make you. room for you. You're
1: right. And, and, uh, my gifts made room for me. People, it got around to people that this talented young kid, you know, He's a keyboard player just, just like you. When I see you, I see me, you know. Mm. But I'm just right. happy to see that you got the opportunity to get the education behind it all. I got mine straight from the streets. And then once I hooked up a brand from Marcellus, that's when I started getting some real education. I mean, I went to the Cleveland School of Arts, but School of the arts didn't really teach me anything in regards to music because it was so political. It was very political for me. Politics was used against me.
0: Mm.
1: So I didn't really like, I lost the interest. Three years have been in that school, and I stayed in it so long, but I should have gotten out. It was uh, nine, ten, and eleven, I believe it was 1911 grade, and then the twelfth grade. I went to Glenville and graduated. So, mm. yeah, it was like I just I just could not get a fair shake. So, having gone through all that I went through at the School of the Arts, um, it taught me to appreciate everything that I've accomplished. Because I mean, I think it was designed to to actually deter me because Mm. I know my gift is big. Your gift is big, you have a big gift, man. I recognize my own. Mm. So I just, um, I I thank God for every opportunity, even to this day, because all the odds were were against me. From Mm. childhood to uh, going to school, uh, just all the politics. Had I had the support back then, you know, and the extra eyes looking over me, I would have learned, embrace this issue of politics because you're gonna need it where you're going. And believe me, it's nothing but politics in this business. It's all mm. politics. If you can't get along with people, you may as well just get out. Right, Get out now while you can, because <laughs> uh, they'll put you out if <laughs> you can't. Uh, I mean, music is not even the forefront of the situation, man. It's like music business. It should be business music. Because <laughs> mm. it's like business, politics, all of that come before anything. Because if it was about the music, we'd have more, more talented people that are not getting the exposure, getting the exposure. Right, you so, right. So, but, but that's that's a whole other bottle of whiskey right there. <laughs> so, but yeah, I just I'm just um, it was just word of mouth. A lot of it was word of mouth, and being able to back up what people were saying, you know. Mm-hmm. And and that's I think that's what opened a lot of the doors for me. That's what was used to open yeah. a lot of doors. Um, the fact that I didn't stroke the people that I worked for, Frankie Beverly, Tina Marie. Uh, the people that I played for, Gerald Levert, the Rude Boys and all those guys. Me and the Rude Boys, you know, we all kind of came up in the same talent shows no night. But I came in, I did my job, kept my mouth shut. I didn't stroke none of that. And I think that that's what made them respect me all the more because I did my gig, you know, I did it well. And uh, keeping your mouth shut can open a lot of doors. Keep your mouth closed, you can open a lot of doors. So, and uh, that that played a big part in it too. It got around with all the older guys, man, when I was in the bars that you know, hire Frank, you know, Frank will come and play for you. And they, they they knew they didn't have to pay me a whole lot because I was just a kid. I didn't have no kids. You know, mm-hmm. I was not married. I was still living in my mama house, still in school, you know. Mm-hmm. So I just kept my mouth shut in those bars. And they right. gave me my respect. They didn't care who was coming in there playing as long as they were getting their drink on and getting and the bar was making the money off of the off of the uh, off the alcohol sales. And you know, they didn't care who came in as a musician as long as you didn't uh, cut up, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that helped to uh Steer me in the right direction. Believe it or not, I shouldn't have been in all them bars. But when you come up like I did, right. it was better that than than selling dope or something. Man, I was We're just back. playing music in the bars, keeping my mouth shut. <laughs> but hey. I, I came up hood, like straight hood. You know, it was it wasn't times like these where you got carded for going into a bar. I mean, it was the hood of Cleveland. So you know what it's like. Mm. Yeah, it was a whole different thing back then. You could drive a car at thirteen and not nobody stop you. <laughs> you know, stop you. You didn't have to have insurance a whole different way of life you know mm-hmm. a whole different way of life
0: so yeah. you uh talk to me a little bit man about the business though cuz i mean you you made a transition uh like mm-hmm. what a couple like must up. it's been about what i don't know how long 15 12 something it like a couple years about, ago like, from 2000, going
1: 2004 you went independent so now what is that about 16 years something like that 2004 to now where i, I went independent yeah. yeah i was when i signed to motown um Motown was bought out by Polygram. Polygram bought Motown for millions of dollars, and the little guys like me, who mm-hmm. hadn't had records out, or was just working on a record, and hadn't gotten it out, or uh, had not brought money to the label, uh, million sell, it, million you know platinum records rather, uh, guys like us, we were forgotten about. You know, right. they they didn't really put interest in us. So um, it was all about uh, Stevie, Johnny Gill, Queen Latifah. Biv 10 Entertainment, and under Biv 10 was to to Man, ABC, BBD. That's what got all the attention when this merge or when this, when this uh, purchase took place. Mm. So, um, Gerald Busby, late Gerald Busby, gave me the opportunity between, it was Busby and Steve McKeever, and they asked me if I wanted to stay or if I wanted to leave. And they, they gave me the heads up that it was going to be some changes over there. And uh, it was up to me to stay or go, and I decided to leave. So, um, I left and I went on the road with a band called Buckshot La Funk, featuring Bradford Marcellus. Now, uh, I gave Buckshot a couple of hit tunes, and, you know, writing them and singing them out front. And that led to my deal with Columbia Records because the Marcellus family was over there at Columbia. And um, Bradford eventually got me signed to Columbia, even though they originally passed passed on me, the r department did, they passed on me to sign someone else. I believe that person was Alicia Keys, but they didn't do anything mm. with her either. So um, I had to wait my wait my time out and he got me signed through the jazz department. So once he got me signed through the jazz department, there were internal issues at the label between jazz and RB. and then there were issues between Branford and the president of the jazz department. And and it went around that if, if uh, anybody supports this guy's album, you lose your job. Now, I don't know how true that is, but I can believe there is some truth to that because they did not push my record. They didn't push Love Stories. I got Love Stories out in March of 2000 after recording um, it in, in 2008. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, 1998, mm-hmm. I recorded that album. It sat on the shelf all of 99. So I toured with Shadda Khan and Frankie Beverly. Uh, I toured with Frankie Beverly in, I think it was April of 99, and then March up till New Year's. I, I do it with Shaka Khan, but I got this great record sitting on the shelf at Columbia. Mm. So I'm like, I'm a recording artist sitting up here still playing for other recording artists. When that should be me out front. Right. I got this great record sitting on a major label, and it's just nothing happening for me. So then I got a little help, went to the label, got them to finally put it out. But the but the rumor is that the president of the company said we're gonna put it out. But you know, if it if it sticks, it sticks. If it doesn't, oh well. But I say all the time in my classes, FMI-AI, which is the Framingham Independent Artists Institute. I say in my class all the time, how do you give birth to a child and, and expect it to raise itself? Mm. It's going to die. So that's what happens, to love stories. But the fans caught on. So looking from the eyes of the public, I was signed to a major black label, Motown. Went to a major white label, Columbia. Both had issues that had nothing to do with me, political issues that had nothing to do with me. So I ended up going to an indie label whose name I won't even mention in press. That's how bad they are. Even bad <laughs> press is good for them. <laughs> so I won't even—they're not even worth mentioning. So because I tell these stories as my testimony and not for exploitation, right? That's the thing. So as I signed to this other company. I figured if I'm at a major black label, a major white label, and it's political issues against me, they have nothing to do with me or the music. Then let me go to this indie label. Where I'm the only—I'm the only one on the on the roster. Let's see what happens now. Well, they thought they had a modern-day slave nephew. Mm. I was like, no, I'm out. <laughs> so I put out the album, The Truth. And it was supposed to be only The Truth Volume 1, not The Truth Volume 2, because The Truth Volume 2, um, that record was never supposed to exist. It was only called The Truth. That was the name of the album. But the guy that produced the record that I did for Motown in 95, that was never released before I left the label, still had the masters to that record in 2003 when I was working on The Truth Volume 1, so to speak because this guy who produced that album in 95 was also the guy that produced the record, The Truth that I was putting out at that time. So back in 95, I'm 24 years old, going on 25. Um, you know, At this time I, I had turned 25, my wife and I, we, I had gotten married at this time and we had our first child. So my mind is on my family now. Right. I got a new family. Um, trying to make the ends meet with the touring and stuff and take care of my family. So my mind wasn't on Frank, you need an attorney, go back to Motown and see if you can get that record. My mind wasn't there as a businessman. I'm looking at my family now. So, and then life is moving on, moving on, moving on. And this guy still has the record, the, the, the masters to that record somewhere in a vault. <laughs> so mm. in 2003, we put out the truth volume one was like I said, this truth. And, um, we go to London. No, we were in a, Birmingham, Birmingham, England. It was a huge festival. We're playing this festival, and as I'm signing autographs, after my show's done, I'm signing autographs in the room, about a hundred people. I mean, it's a long line of people. And I'm mm-hmm. signing autographs and about 20 people have a copy of this disc. Frank McComb, the Motown sessions. It's all at the little paper set. And I flip it over and they were all CDRs. Wasn't mixed, wasn't mastered, they were all CDRs. And each person told me how they got it. They had ordered online because that's when eBay was just kind of hitting the scene and you could start, you know, buying stuff online. It was just starting to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And they all told me in the ballpark of what the ballpark of what they paid for that project unreleased 25 pounds at the time was 50 us dollars. That's what they were getting for my work. And he was hand burning them, like burning them in 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 a burner somehow. So, um, that's when I went independent. I figured, well, major black label didn't get it, major white label didn't get it, any label didn't get it. I, I got to do it for myself. So I started burning, I took four songs out of what I caught my vault, which was my studio, and I put them all on CDR. I burned them in a laptop, one at a time. And I wanted this record rough. I figured if he could sell a rough record on me and do well, why can't I do it for me too? So I burned this disc with like 11 songs on, I think. And I called it straight from the vault. I hand wrote Frank McComb straight from the wall with a Sharpie on every single CD. And if it wasn't for my wife helping me, man, I, I know I would have struggled to try to mm. keep that going. Because she was right alongside of me. We were like a machine. <laughs> <laughs> Burn right package. Burn right package. Yep, Burn yep. right. Yeah, me and her. And it, I ended up selling this CD uh, around the world. Like, you know, like bootlegging, like a bootlegger would, would sell somebody else's record. Well, I bootlegged my own record, so to speak. I hand-packaged my own CD, just like they did, selling cassettes out of the chunks of the cars in the hood. I did the same thing, but I did it internationally. And um, it it started, uh, it, it really took off for me. And um, it won me my first award. It won me for Best Album of the Year, which is big for me. It might be small for others, but it was big for me. Best Album of the Year at, with SoulTracks.com. And I mean, there's literally nobody else on this whole project but me, straight from the vault. I programmed everything. So um, I started making my first instrumental record, A Tribute to the Masters. And it was a tribute to Chickarea, Herbie Hancock, Russell Ferrante, Ramsey Lewis, uh, um, Patrice Rush, and Joe Sample. All mm-hmm. these people I, I did distribute to. And it's like a sort of like a soul jazz, a soul smooth jazz type record, right? And people started asking me, what are you going to do about this Motown? sessions record going around i said well i'm gonna figure this out i ordered a copy from him (laughs) from the guy (laughs) anonymously and i made that my master so i used that and i put the two records out at the same time december 1st 2006 i put out a tribute to the masters and i put out this uh motown sessions record it was i called it the 1995 boulet at this time Mm -hmm. i'm working with prince and we're at a place in burbank called center staging and during the rehearsal, I'll never forget, during the rehearsal, like when we first got, when I first got there, my wife came down to rehearsal with me and we set everything up. We set up, by this time I got a tower where I could burn mm-hmm. like three or four at a time. Put the tower up, put my printer up and all in a stack of CDRs and and, <laughs> and, uh, and standard cases, right? Right. And paper, because we had printed everything, you know. So mm-hmm. we had the CD printer so we could print on top of the CD. And... Uh, while I'm rehearsing with Prince, she's in Prince's office. Now there's a little office room. She's in Prince's office. Just stuff up, right? Right. So when we would take breaks from the rehearsal, I would run in there and join her. And Nisa and I package, package it, package <laughs> So fight. And I mean, it's like by break number three. I mean, Prince is watching the whole time, but not saying nothing, right? So by break number three, he comes in and he says, What are you guys doing? <laughs> <laughs> That's as loud as he spoke. And I said, I'm running a family business, man. I'm trying to get my records out. I'm trying to be like you. Same thing you said to me. <laughs> so he said, okay, this is cool. All right. So he looks at, now mind you, my wife was burning. I think she was burning all three titles, straight from the vault, um, a tribute to the Masters, but she was definitely burning the 1995
0: bootleg. Mm-hmm.
1: So when when uh, he picked up the bootleg, he looked at it. He looked at me and said, what does this mean? Well, it was a white piece of paper with a skinny leg inside of a construction boot, right? The skinny Mm. leg is wearing a construction boot. Well, I said the construction boot represents the fact that the man is working hard, but the skinny leg represents the fact that he's starving from his work. He's not eating from his work. Mm. He screamed. Man, he screamed. Man, he screamed. Because I never gave the description, you know, what it meant. On the, on the CD or in the credits or anything. I just put it on there. And it's, it was a conversation piece for a lot of interviews. So I told him, and he screamed, man. Next thing I knew, man. You said, wait, I, Prince screamed? Yeah, Prince screamed. He couldn't <laughs> believe it. He was he screamed in excitement. He was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> so it was then that he told me. He said, man, go all the way with it. If you're going to do this independent thing, you're going to have to go all the way with it. It might be an uphill climb, but do it. You know, own your masters, own your music, because record labels are not going to pay you what you think they're going to pay you for masters, you know, or for your uh, for your royalties, rather. Um, one, well, If you have your own masters, you can manipulate your own music. You can keep reinventing it, as John P. Key taught me. He said it's reinventing yourself. You just reinvent. Find different ways to remix your music. Put it out. It's yours. You can do what you want. But if a label owns it, they're going to do what they want and you're not going to have any say over it. So it feels good to own own the masters to my music. I mean, my live records, I've got a couple of studio records, but I recorded all those records. It's all mine. And um, record, edit, mix, master, I did all of the stuff myself. I had to just learn how to do it and just use my ears to get the best possible sound that I could get. And I came up with 70s kids, so I listened to a lot of records, and I still know that sound sonically. That's what I want my records to sound like. I want it to sound like it could be vital. I want the music to sound like the the cover should look like an old school vinyl record, you know. Right. And uh, that's, that's pretty much how I uh, build what I'm building. But they uh, the truth volume, too, since we're speaking on business, um, the people that bootlegged the record was mad at the fact that I bootlegged. I took what they bootlegged, which was mine. I took it back and I put it out. So, to slap me on the wrist, they took the outtakes from the Truth Volume. Well, from the Truth, they took the outtakes from that. And then they took music from the record that I did in '95 that I put out, that they put out. How about that? And they fused the two together and called it the Truth Volume 2. That record was never supposed to be out because um, the agreement that I made with them was a one album deal, not two. Mm
0: -hmm. It was a
1: one album deal. And the. In the agreement, they were supposed to get worldwide, mainstream distribution. But when you're asking for a million dollars for an artist, that's not worth a million dollars. And we're talking business here. I am Frank McComb, and I know I'm not going to get a million dollars. Let me me, me, me rephrase that, because Mm -hmm. dog can do anything. (laughs) But I knew in the natural, with man, they they wouldn't want to put up a million dollars for an artist who hasn't sold a million dollars worth of music. Mm -hmm. That's just common sense. Mm -hmm. Just keep it real. So... They, they overshot their load. Nobody would pick up the record because they were more concerned about the egg, the, the golden egg, and not the goose that laid it. They were more mm-hmm. concerned about the album, the truth, more so than the artist and taking care of the artist. Big no-no. Right. Without the chicken, you ain't getting no more eggs, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: Think true. About you're,
1: right, you're right. So, so um, what I did was I used their ignorance against them, and I found that clause in the agreement, well, in the contract. Prince said, call it a call it an agreement because you need to know what you're getting into. It, you call it a contract. Most likely they got you. Right. <laughs> and it was a contract at the time. But I found the loophole in it. The, the distribution loophole. They were supposed to find distribution, but they ended up going with a small company out of London and they licensed it to, to that company. They didn't think I'd catch it. But that's how I got out of the deal.
0: Mm. So yeah. is it safe to say like Prince was the one that kind of inspired you to go independent in that in that sense? sir?"
1: Yeah, he endorsed it. I mean, I was I already had the mentality to do it after the experience and all that I had gone through. Um, I had already had, had the mentality of it. I was already I had made up in my mind that I'm going independent. I mean, there's no place else to go. I didn't want to make a career of trying to chase labels and and be no superstar.
0: Right. So, So, Talk to me now about like, now that you are independent, where, what is the way that you're trying or that you are, you know, making a living from this? Like, are there different streams of things that you're doing or what's the process for that?
1: Definitely the streaming and thank God for royalties. Okay. Royalties and streaming. Yeah. Yeah. I I encourage, I encourage everybody out there that's making music to try to just do the best you can to write your own music or be a part of the writing process because Mm -hmm. that's your future money. You know your royalties, your publishing, your royalties—that's your future money. And when you when you own your own music, you own your own masters. You can you can make um, you can manipulate that in a good sense. You can do remixes to your music and re-release it. You know, do remastered versions, re-release it, add a couple songs to it, new new songs to it to make it different. You know, you have people out there that will collect if they're fans of yours, they'll collect. They, they'll be the uh, best way to put it, quote, unquote, Frank McComb music Collectors. So anything I will put out, they will collect it, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but you want to give them something that you feel is really good. You don't want to shortchange people. Um, write music. Be a part of writing music with other people. Make sure that your business is taken care of in regards to the publishing splits and things of that nature. So when you, uh, for example, if you and I wrote a song, I I don't believe in oh I wrote you only wrote this amount of lyrics, so you only get this amount. I, man, I, I'm not that guy, man. If if you and I writing, I'm gonna make sure you pull your weight just like I pulled mine and we earn equal shares. Mm-hmm. Split it down in the middle 50-50. We all gotta eat. Right. If me, you and Val King, who who I met you through, mm-hmm. if you and if me, you and Val B. King wrote a song, so just split it 33 and a third, 33, 33, 34, or whatever, you know, just as long as it's equal, man. We all gotta eat. That cuts out all the mess, but make sure your business is done, because if it takes off. Then you got your split. Right, right and In right. times like these, those royalty checks still keep coming.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, um, in my case, I've been blessed to perform online. You know, I still have the masters to my music, so I pull that stuff up and I play every weekend online. I I, I was doing it like two, three times a week, but now I'm just going to do it on Friday nights on my Facebook Live, and people donate. You know, you got fans that donate to you. You know, mm-hmm. and because the whole world right now is looking to the internet. Exactly. We can't perform right now. Exactly. And as of today, they just shut L.A. down again. So all of the indoor meetings, like, you know, the indoor gatherings indoor all the indoor operations, what they call it, you know, bars, churches, restaurants and all of that stuff gone. And we don't know how long it's going to be shut down. So I'm staying online. We have no idea when the entertainment is going to open up. You can't keep a restaurant open. For people to sit out and eat. We exactly. sure don't know when a venue is going to open. Exactly. So I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing, playing my music online, uh, enjoying my royalties. Don't <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> take home. You know what I mean? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, and that's, that's what you got to do, man. Just, you know, you got to um, make the best of, of a crazy time. And that's what I'm doing. and making the best of a crazy time, man man i'm just i'm just blessed that i have enough talent to where i can sit and hold a captivated audience online for an hour right you know and they're still saying i'm reading comments at the end where people are saying encore 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 that's a blessing man so absolutely i'm not sorry for the shaking i'm hitting the table no, you good. i'm 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 just blessed to to still be able to sustain in such a time it's not easy for everybody
0: so you know? yeah man i hear you i hear you So, um, I'm gonna let you go because I appreciate you, man. You gave me a lot of gems to to look at, look back on. uh, But I gotta know, man, you've been touring a lot. So you gotta tell me a crazy story, man, that happened on tour or something, something that you can, you know, say to everybody.
1: I'll tell you something that happened actually in Cleveland before I even really started touring heavy.
0: What happened, man? George
1: Benson. George Benson and I, I've known George since I was like 17, Mm -hmm. right? And, um, I remember, um, I met George through a lady named Charm Warren, who was his Warner Brothers rep at the time, right? So me and my buddy went up to Columbus, Ohio to meet him because he was in Columbus doing a show thanks to Charm. She set up some tickets. After the show, George and I, we met and it's like he took to me, just easily just took to me, right? And um, some months later, George came back to do a concert in Cleveland. I, you know, once I met him that night, I didn't think I'd ever see him again or meet him again, you know? Right. And this a 17-year-old Frank called me George Benson, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, man, that dude called the house and my mother answered the phone. She said, hello? She said, oh, okay. Hold on. Here, Frank, the phone is for you. hello. <laughs> George Benson. George Benson. She's like, whatever. No, no, Mama's is George. Psh, whatever. Yeah. So I was like, hey, hey, Mr. Benson, he said, man, call me George, man. I'm coming to town. I want you to come and hang out with all those old guys. I was like, all right, okay, cool. I will. All right. But, 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 Mr. Benson, did I say call me George? Yeah, yeah. Okay, George. <laughs> George. Yeah, George. Yeah, George. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I ain't played too many gigs this week, so I ain't really got a lot of money to be hanging. He said, man, don't talk to me about no money. <laughs> so, so, you know, fast forward to a couple of days later, he comes to, no, let me take that back. I ended up going out on the scene telling everybody, cause I was going to all of the bars, you know, man, me and George Benson gonna be hanging out. We gonna be hanging out. They're like, oh uh, yeah, right, Junja, right. yeah. Not Junior, but Junja. Yeah, right, Junja, <laughs> yeah, okay, whatever. Okay, now mind you, this is Cleveland. I'm like 17, 18 years old. Yeah, right, okay, yeah. Junja said George Benson gonna be hanging with. Yeah, right, okay, whatever. Man, George came to town. We went to dinner. I didn't know this Ritzy place that he knew, so I just met him at his hotel and then followed his limo down. We get to this place. They park. I park my car. We go inside the restaurant. We talk and eat and have dinner fast forward to the end of the night, end of the dinner, rather. And, um, you know, he got to telling everybody, you know, about all this talent that I got in the whole nine. And I said, yeah, man, it's funny, because... Nobody believed me when I told him that we, you and I would be hanging. They didn't believe me. He said, oh, don't worry. You have your time. You have your time. So he finished talking, pays bill. We get up, leave the restaurant. I'm going to my car, which was a two-tone green 1978 Buick Regal. They had just stolen the radio out of my ride. Man, I had nice. <laughs> <laughs> so he walks to his limo to get in his car but I thought he was getting in the car to leave. He gave the limo driver some money. He said, wait, Frank, wait, stay there. Gave the limo driver some money. And then comes back to my car, opens the door, gets in the car and closes it, says, ready? I said, ready for what? And I'm thinking, I got millions of dollars sitting in this passenger seat. I ain't trying to be driving around and no accident with this dude, right? right? <laughs> he said, let's go and um hit these bars with all these cats that said that they didn't believe you would be hanging with me. Mm. I said really easy. Yeah, it was like the big brother going after the bullies, man. (laughs) So we hit about three spots, man. And they were like kissing his butt. And I mean the the owners of the spots, or the manager of the the spots, ended up giving me their nights to play that week. (laughs) They ended up giving me how things turn around. They They ended up up giving me gigs. They gave me the the managers of those clubs, gave me their nights. Like they lost gigs, and the gigs became mine. So if it was a Wednesday night, I got that Wednesday night now. All <laughs> 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 well, because I brought George to their establishment. Yeah. That's yeah.
0: crazy, man. Yeah,
1: man.
0: man and guys, that's right there
1: in Cleveland, Ohio it had to be around 19, had to be around 1988. Geez. Yeah, 88, 87, something like that. I was like 17, 18 years old.
0: Man, you so yeah. I mean it, it feels like man, you've you've done it all to this point. What what's next? Like what, what could you possibly do? <laughs>
1: I don't know. I got to stay in the face of God and get that answer. I don't know, man, because with COVID, I don't know what is next. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm just going to keep doing my live gigs and putting out music. You know, I just put out the um, a, a remake of one of John P. Key's tunes. Like right now, I've got um, that gospel single. It's called We Made It. And it's old school, too, man. Just like one lead voice, three backing vocals, which is just me, Fender Rhodes, and electric bass, and I'm programming Mm -hmm. the bass like an old 70 year old bass player. (laughs) So it's old school R&B, so that's out now. I've got an instrumental jazz tune out with Dennis Chambers where he's playing drums and I'm doing everything else. Mm -hmm. And then my son, I have an urban R&B tune out now. So my son produced a tune called No Matter What. That tune is uh, actually is his drum program because he's really a beat maker. Skinny Kid Frank, look him up. So he's uh programming the, the drums and everything else is me. So I've got an urban tune, a jazz tune, and a gospel tune on the market right now, all three different types of singles. So um to be blessed to be able to 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 uh to work in different genres effectively, I just take advantage of it, maximize the opportunities, man. Maximize mm-hmm. um your talents. Push yourself to the limit.
0: Yes, sir. Yes, if sir. you
1: can't push yourself to the limit, like my son is challenging me to listen to more urban R&B music, you know, because he believes enough in me that I could actually put more urban music out because it's still in me. So if my son believes enough in me to do it, then I'm going to do it. I'm just I'm just going to experiment in this time, just experiment with music, you know. I uh, have to finish up Val B King's record. As a matter of fact, we're doing some with her. In fact, Skinny Kid is on that as well. He's programmed some drums for her. Nice. So, yeah, trying to get her thing out. So I'll be jumping back on that soon too. Yeah, that's I just experimenting. Experiment while I can. Hey,
0: look, I, nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with it. Yeah, man. That's
1: how you that's how you find what you like and what you don't like. Experiment, yes, sir. you know? Yeah, hey, what you got going on, man? What's happening?
0: Man, look, I'm I'm trying to grow this podcast, man. So growing. Y- yes, sir, man. Growing, uh, man. I'm working on a, a new project myself too. I might need some pointers too, so I'll have to have to okay. shoot you a couple of text messages and stuff, man. Yeah. Man. <laughs>
1: Oh it's all good, this, this man. This my
0: this is my first time actually trying to you know. Well, I've, I had a project out when I was like sixteen, but this is my first cool. time like trying to really put uh, actual you know thing together. So yeah, I gotta definitely get some help from you.
1: <laughs> all right, it's all good. I'm here, man. Yes, sir, right, man. We'll, we'll, we'll work it out. I was we we'll, we'll
0: figure it all out. All right, man. I got, I got I like got time. You. I got time. So right, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing but time
1: right, right now, right. bro. Man, <laughs> really. Yeah.
0: Uh, thank you look man thank you so much for being on the podcast man I appreciate it man for those yeah, of, man. where can people find out more of the stuff that you're doing you got a website and all that stuff tell the people real quick
1: actually um people can um uh uh what's the word? Follow me on Instagram. That's Frank McComb. F- <laughs> yes, I'm trying to remember it. all this stuff. F-I-A-K-M-C-C-O-M-B. Frank McComb. That's my Instagram. Um uh friend me on Facebook. Uh that's Booby Scoot, B-O-O-B-E-E, S C O O T. Booby Scoot. Um, that's my Facebook. And then my Facebook fan page, like my fan page is Frank McComb. Uh Frank McComb fans. That's what that is. And then they can get music at at Bandcamp. Frank C D baby. Uh, all my music's on iTunes, Amazon, all those different places. I'm I'm everywhere online. So it's much appreciated too. Yeah. Much
0: appreciated. Yes, sir. Hey, man, thank you for being on, man. I appreciate it. (laughs)
1: Yeah, man, we'll do it again. Yes, sir. We'll do it again. Yes,
0: sir.